Hello, I'm Claire White, and joining me is... Kyle Willoughby. <laughs> and this is Dragon, Sexy Robots and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. We are here to discuss new and old nerd creations, how they were made, and explore the roots of the characters and the stories. And today, we are talking about Game of Thrones. Yes, we're jumping on the Game of Thrones bandwagon, uh, probably the last of it, too. <laughs> yeah. Finally. <laughs> Finally. Um, so for those of you who don't know what Game of Thrones is, I, I, once again, I said this with Lord of the Rings, where have you been? But we're, I'll do a quick synopsis. Game of Thrones is the hit HBO show based on the best-selling epic fantasy series A Song of Ice and Fire by George R.R. R. Martin. The show and book series follow a large cast of characters in a medieval world of dragons, magic, and seven kingdoms run by seven powerful families, all vying for a spot at the top, the Iron Throne dominance over the continent of Westeros. There's also a side plot about ice zombies, but don't worry, that doesn't go very far. The first book was released in 1996, while the first season of the show premiered in 2011. The show was helmed by David Benioff, D.B. Weiss, with consultation from George R.R. R. Martin. Uh, the show has launched the acting careers of Amelia Clark, Kit Harrington, Maisie Williams, Sophie Turner, and it starred established actors such as Peter Dinklage, Sean Bean, and Lena Headey. And for those who don't know, we like to pair our episodes together to take an older piece of nerd culture and compare a newer piece of nerd culture. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about the Lord of the Rings movies as kind of a precursor to the Game of Thrones TV show yes. today. And uh, we talk about the history and the production behind them. And Kyle, you're doing history. What are for you talking about for Game of Thrones? Excuse I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about how Lord of the Rings changed uh, the fantasy film genre in the early 2000s and the fantasy films that came after it and kind of what set the stage for Game of Thrones to become so big. I'm very excited about that. And I'm going to talk about making Game of Thrones, why it happened, how it happened, and where TV is going from there. Which I'm super excited to hear about. And it's Claire. my opus, Kyle. Also, we're going to say um, spoilers for all Game of Thrones, all the show, I guess the books as well. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So if you don't, if you haven't seen Game of Thrones still and you plan on watching it, go watch it and come back and listen. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to start by talking a bit about the fantasy film landscape post Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings films ended up casting a pretty long and dark shadow over fantasy television and cinema for a while after their release. Fairly Mordor-esque, actually. The, really? The shadow cast by Lord of the Rings. Well, it was just, a, it was eclipsing everything. Nothing could compare. You right. Know? Uh, it was a, other other fantasy franchises. They felt hopeless in the despair <laughs> of comparing themselves to the mighty, the <laughs> mighty the one, <laughs> the mighty one. Yeah, the one fantasy franchise to rule them Mama. all. Return of the King, the conclusion to the Lord of the Rings, came out in two thousand three and swept the Oscars. It took home eleven Academy Awards. Uh, the film grossed over a billion dollars worldwide. It won Best Film, Best Director, Best Score. It won every category it was nominated in. Hopeful young nerds like myself thought that this would be some sort of a turning point, that fantasy films and book adaptations would become the norm and would be respected, Claire. <laughs> and one of those hopes kind of came true, and the other wouldn't really come true until around 2013. Oh, well, explain. Well, following the Lord of the Rings films, fantasy as a film genre would definitely become more prevalent. And you saw a similar thing with Star Wars in the late 70s and the early 80s, which, Claire, you touched on on our last episode. 
a goofy sci-fi fantasy movie comes out, it becomes a cultural phenomenon, and a flood of mostly lesser quality films, but similar in genre, follow in its wake. In the 80s, you saw stuff like Legend, and The Dark Crystal, and Conan the Barbarian, and Excalibur. And these movies, while largely considered inferior to the Star Wars trilogy that, if not inspired them, at least changed the culture enough for them to be made, are still regarded today as cult classics. You can say some good things about those films. Some of those films. Some of those films, sure. Uh, The same cannot largely be said for most of the fantasy films and television that followed Lord of the Rings. I think we'll know that in another 20 years or so. This is true. But even at at the time in the 80s after Star Wars came out, you still had, I'm going to put this in quotes because I want to punch myself saying it, artiste directors working (laughs) in sci-fi and film. You know, people who are respected and who have had a long uh, history now. I know, I I get it. But Ridley Scott did a fantasy film. Right, but we, he wasn't at a place, he wasn't in the place his career was going to grow to be. And you don't know the people who directed these fantasy films. They could still get somewhere. Uh, Well, the problem with a lot of the fantasy films they used, or a lot of the directors they used for the fantasy films after Lord of the Rings were sometimes they would grab an established guy like like Steven Spielberg or or Robert Zemeckis, and they'd make him do those movies. And so they're not regarded as like, oh, the early work of this new up-and-coming director. They're regarded as the bad work of this established director. (laughs) Of this brilliant director. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Point made. So the post-Return of the King film world had a lot of attempts at recapturing that Lord of the Rings magic. The Harry Potter movies are beloved and they did well, but they never quite became the cultural milestone that was Lord of the Rings, especially not when you consider the awards extravaganza that those films enjoyed. I would say it had a huge cultural impact, though, if not a bigger cultural impact than Lord of the Rings. I think think Harry Potter as a whole has a huge cultural Mm -hmm. impact, but those movies, the Harry Potter films— do not near the cultural impact of the Lord of the Rings films. I think those Lord of the Rings films really, they put fantasy on the map in a way that those Harry Potter movies didn't. They legitimized fantasy as a film genre in the way those Harry Potter films did. You can't hear my nodding, but I'm nodding. I agree. (laughs) And you can say the same with the Chronicles of Narnia movies. Sure, they were decently made and, and they did well at the box office, but they didn't explode onto the scene and sweep the Academy Awards, and they didn't really define the zeitgeist as did Peter Jackson's movies a couple years before. Like, they're beloved. I like those Narnia movies. I like the first one, at least. Yeah. I don't think I saw the second one. I never saw the third, but I, I saw the Prince Caspian movie. I thought it was fine and fun. Mm-hmm. But they weren't epic. They didn't make you feel the feels that Lord of the Rings made you feel, and they didn't have kind of the story of that movie getting made that Lord of the Rings had. Those are more, like, reactionary of, oh, movies based on these fantasy books are did really well. What other fantasy books are there? Let's make movies out of them. We're going to make yeah, a bazillion let's make dollars. Some money. Yeah. Also, with the bombardment of mediocre and subpar fantasy fare, the genre started to lose what cultural and respectable clout it had gained from the film industry with Lord of the Rings. And I'm going to circle back to this at the end uh, with a, an old article I found on the first episodes of Game of Thrones that is oh. very harsh. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, and and kind of looked at it as like, just like this silly kids thing. Um, the Golden Compass film of 2007 or the Aragon film in 2006 – You know, the first Percy Jackson film and the Clash of the Titans remake, both in 2010. These were all studios taking fantasy concepts, movies based on fantasy books, and just 
rushing them through production and throwing them at the wall and seeing what would stick, hoping it would be the next Lord of the Rings. I saw three out of four of those and was disappointed by everyone I saw. Yeah, yeah. I I never saw the Percy Jackson films and I never the Percy Jackson books, but I did read the Aragon books and saw the Aragon film and what a what a rough time. That Golden Compass movie because even was even worse because that the source material is so, so good. So good, yeah. And Clash of the Titans, the trailer was so good. Yeah. <laughs> I got I I wonder if Clash of the Titans will be one of those maybe cult classic. Mm-hmm. It's I I had a cheesy good time, but I haven't wa- gone back and rewatched right. it and I don't see myself wanting to go back right. and rewatch it too. So I think it not. has to live up to the original Clash of the Titans, yeah. which is a cheesy great time. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's just not going to be not, held in the same esteem. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and of course, we must mention Peter Jackson's second foray into Middle Earth, um, the financially successful but technically weak Hobbit movies. And that's the thing about those Hobbit movies. They eat the the lowest one, the one that netted the least, still netted the studio's $950 million. Mm-hmm. And there's a really interesting episode by The Prancing Pony, who we had on our podcast a couple years ago. And they talk about why the Hobbit films are the way they are. So for Lord of the Rings and Hobbit fans, that's a it's a great episode to just kind of get an insight into how the how it turned out that way. Yeah, yeah. And then the Hobbit was fi- very financially successful, but it still was sort of a detriment to fantasy movies in a mm-hmm. way that people are like, oh, this is this is bad. This is not respectable, and it it takes takes away some it, of that. This clout is not winning any Oscars. Yeah, exactly. And don't even get me started on the TV shows. Oh, my God. The awful Legend of the Seeker, which was based on Terry Goodkind's <laughs> sort of truth novels, was just terrible. There was also a really bad Wizard of Earthsea adaptation based on Ursula K. Le Guin's book. Both of these were on the Sci-Fi Network. Uh, studios all over were doing their best to smother all the gains that Lord of the Rings had made in the realm of epic fantasy genre films by flooding the market with what they thought should be the next Lord of the Rings. Um, And it speaks to a lack of vision and a lack of respect for the genre. When you look back at what made Lord of the Rings, it was a goofy fan of the books who had mostly made horror movies almost stumbling into the chance to make the Lord of the Rings. And it's a similar formula that has served Marvel's cinematic universe so well. Not that a goofy director stumbles into this, but there's, there's someone with a vision. Have a vision. Hire people that are fans of and care about what the IP is, mm-hmm. the intellectual property. And a lot of movie studios, including New Line, the company that financed Lord of the Rings, just started adapting every and any epic fantasy book they could get their hands on. Perhaps some of them, some of the lack of success came from the source material not being as good as Tolkien. Aragon is not as good a book as Lord of the Rings, and you can fight me. <laughs> Bring it. <laughs> Bring it. I, like this, I don't think there's an argument to be made there. But it also came from studios not caring about these adaptations. Yeah. Golden just, Compass is great. The Golden Compass is a great is a great book. And that's a funny thing. The Golden Compass was made by New Line Cinema. Right. That was their next thing. They're like, oh, we did Lord of the Rings. Now we're going to do Golden Compass. But they they forgot the formula. They didn't get someone who cared about the property. They were just like, oh, this will make us a bazillion dollars like Lord of the Rings yeah, did. Yeah, churn it out. Let's churn it out fast. It also came from studios just not caring about these adaptations. They would just find a fantasy book. They'd buy the rights. They'd cast some A-list celeb- celebs. Uh, they'd make a stale film by committee, and then they were upset when it didn't do well. And they're like, well, fantasy films don't do well. They're just bad. And which had been proven wrong. All the time. Five, eight years ago when Lord of the Rings right. came Right. Well, out. it continued to be 
proven over and over again. Like, Star Wars did very well. Like, fantasy does do well when it's made with love. Jurassic Park. Yeah. I mean, that's tech could be science fiction. Yeah. E.T., Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter. Yeah. Like, it can be done well and it can be successful. Anyway, this is, I'm going to talk about this too. So, Ooh, continue. goody, goody. Game of Thrones would first premiere in 2011. It had a lot going for it, too. Uh, it had a decent budget, that HBO budget, which you know, it wasn't what it is now. But it was still pretty good, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is very far from the ill-fated Earthsea and Legend of the Seeker that languished on pennies over on sci-fi. It had a smaller but more serious fan base than, say, something like the YA fantasies of Aragon or Percy Jackson uh, the Game of Thrones, which uh, it's, it's actually a Song of Ice and Fire, is the book series. Uh, those fans were really present, and they'd been online finding each other in uh, in chat rooms since 1996, and they were they were very vocal. They were small, but but mm-hmm. but powerful. And it was being adapted by two super fans of the books. It also had the luxury that a lot of those other fantasy adaptations didn't have of of having a superior source material. I I, I think Game of Thrones is. It's, it's a, better. It's a, it's a good it's series. Good, it's a, it's good, a good, series. good series. Yeah. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire books are lauded as possibly the best modern fantasy books around. Time Magazine called him the American Tolkien in 2008. So, I mean, I don't agree with that. Me but, either, but that's fine. But that's fine. And I do, I do believe that A Song of Ice and Fire is better source material than, or maybe not better, but deeper source material than something like Percy Jackson yeah. or Aragon. Um, so it, it had a lot there. It had a lot going for it. Game of Thrones had all these things going for it, and yet still when it premiered, it was almost lost in the shuffle of bad sword and sorcery shows. Leading up to the Game of Thrones premiere, the most popular shows around were very far from a world of dragons and lords and ladies. It was the kind of psychological thriller of Mad Men, the mystery box of Lost, the post-apocalyptic cityscape of Walking Dead, or the fall into violence of Breaking Bad. But what Game of Thrones would turn into is something that would contain elements from all those previously mentioned shows just set in a fantasy world. It had undead zombies. (laughs) It had twists and turns and politicking. It had good characters doing bad things and dealing with the repercussions. But it would still be until its third or fourth year that it would really take off as the phenomenon that it is. Now, there is a, a, I have in my notes here a terrible article, but it's pretty funny to look back on and read. It's from Slate. Uh, it was published in 2011. It was written by Troy Patterson that I wanted to read a little bit from to show the potentially hostile world Game of Thrones was stepping into but would ultimately take over. And the article is entitled Quasi-Medieval Dragon-Ridden Fantasy Crap. <laughs> Art Thou Ready to Watch Game of Thrones? So this is a Slate article from 2011 by Troy Patterson. It's his review so of the excited. first six episodes of the show. The reviewer charges at the steeply overflowing mail bin where the screeners and everything make a tall heap. The mail pile is a mystical tower where whence a series of UPS logos glint like the shields of a sun-addled phalanx and DHL bubble bags cushion deep mysteries, a perilous structure built unthinkingly by the PR girls of the noble publishing houses of Midtown, Midtown spelled with two N's and an E, creatures more (laughs) enchanting than the maidens of Ephesus, who dispatch little brown envelopes and big random invitations and such. Its packages sigh with time-sensitive material. Where the F is the FedEx with the new TV show? The edges of the envelopes rise helically like the worn stone of a spiral staircase curving up to a tuffet-strewn turret. But here the steps only lead only to the window's walk of an L.L. Bean catalog and trembling frustration. 
HBO. So it's this dude just taking a dump on fantasy writing and the way that like the the show is talked. And this is I already don't like. Yeah. And it's just super kind of up its own ass. This is another quote from it. It's which I just abhor, but also find funny about what we know about Game of Thrones Mm -hmm. now. The quest is to complete a six-hour marathon of Game of Thrones, to stay conscious through a clear majority of the first six parts of a ten-episode season. It does not help matters that the series, where the meaty head of a drunken king lies uneasy, where plotters are overplotting and courtiers go according in mutters, proceeds in a style that bears all the most punishing hallmarks of close fidelity to its literary source. Well, sir, your right is certainly not to like it. And I hope you don't continue to watch it. Yeah. And that's, that's, but that's was an early review of the show. There were a lot of early reviews like that. Just, I think it was, what's it, Wall Street Journal, or maybe it was like the New Yorker, where it was like, if you like this Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's just feels so strange becoming, you know, in a world where, I mean, it was a while, but 10 years ago, a fantasy film won. Best best picture, best director. To a lot of lamenting. Give it credit. To a lot yes. of lamenting from yes. the art world. From, yes, that's true. But still, you'd think that this would add credibility. But it, And it took Game of Thrones a couple years to really snowball and become what it is now. It, and and it, most people cite the notorious Red Wedding scene mm-hmm. as when the show turned into In this all-encompassing... Three. Uh, cultural zeitgeist thing. Yeah. But I just, I thought it was really interesting and cool to look back on the space between The, the Return of the King and Game of Thrones right. and like what happened there and why wasn't there more lauded fantasy. Right. And to give credit to that reviewer, I'm sure the other fantasy shows he'd had to watch had been real slogs. Yeah. You know, and yeah. he probably came into it with those expectations. Also, if you don't gravitate towards the genre, you aren't excited about it. Yeah. Yeah. I just think I wonder what he thinks now, or if he's watched the show. Oh, you should Google. Or if he's him. into it now, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he has things to say about That's it. True. Regardless, Kyle, I'm going to tie into you a lot. Um, Perfect. This is good, and uh, this is a very long segment, and I kind of want to disclaim saying I tried to cover everything, so might have ended up covering nothing because there's so <laughs> much to talk about when you come to the production of Game of Thrones. Yeah. All right, and this is my opus. This is your opus, Claire. I'm ready for it. Yeah, here we go. So I'm going to start with George R. R. Martin. He started off, as many a fantasy writer has, by writing fan fiction about his favorite comics when he was a kid. From there, he went to college and eventually earned his bachelor's and master's in journalism from Northwestern University. He had his first story, a science fiction piece called The Hero, published in the Sci-Fi Mag Galaxy in 1971, and his first novel, Dying of the Light, came out in 1976. He went on to become a pretty well-respected science fiction writer who was well-known in the community but never really achieved mainstream success. I heard him compared to Paul Anderson, who was the man who wrote The Three Hearts and Three Lions, which we did an episode on a couple weeks ago. I read the same thing. We probably read the same article. (laughs) (laughs) Beyond that, I'm not really going to talk much about his life and his work beyond Game of Thrones because, like I said, there is just so much to talk about. However, in the 90s, about 20 years or so into his career, George R. R. Martin decided that he wanted to make something that could not be made into a TV show. At the time, he was working in Hollywood as a TV writer working on The Twilight Zone and Beauty and the Beast. And every time he would send in a draft, he would almost always get back all of these edits because what he wanted to do wasn't possible or it was too big or too expensive. 
And having his work get cut up frustrated him so much that his solution was to write a novel that no one would want to film. He made the world of this novel enormous, with huge set pieces, magical creatures, and thousands of characters. This novel, as I'm sure you guessed, was the first Game of Thrones. Yeah, Called Game, Game of, Thrones, of Thrones, and it came out in 1996. It wasn't an instant success, and it didn't premiere to much, if any, fanfare. Yeah, it was kind of a slow burn. Yeah, George R. R. Martin, like I said, was a well-known sci-fi writer in sci-fi circles, but beyond that, he wasn't famous, and he certainly wasn't known as an epic fantasy writer. But here's the thing that you kind of touched on earlier. The first Game of Thrones book came out right when the internet was becoming a thing. In the mid to late 90s, we were getting our first forums, wikis, and chat rooms. In the past, I actually talk about this in our Three Hearts and Three Lions episode, people who liked fantasy might not actually know in their personal life anyone else who liked fantasy. And so it would be hard to discover other pieces if you had no one to compare notes with. In the 90s, tech-savvy fans could now go online and find like-minded fantasy readers all over the world. And this is how word of Game of Thrones spread through the internet. Yes. The books grew more and more popular. And by the time the third book, A Storm of Swords, was released in 2000, it debuted at number 12 on the New York Times bestseller list, which is pretty awesome for just like word of mouth, growing fan community, growing this book. Yeah, that's super cool. And they were all on chat rooms and they were making fan sites and stuff. Oh, yeah. And it was one of the first like big fan uh, site or fan forums, I should say, was the Game of Thrones one. And when book four, A Feast of Crows, came out in 2005, it went to the top of the New York Times bestseller list and was receiving accolades and reviews from major publications. I think this is when Time was calling George R. R. Martin the American Tolkien. Yeah. So the next question is, yes, the books were becoming popular, but how did this book that was made too big for movies or TV become a TV show? Martin said that David Beanoff and D.B. Weiss, who ended up being the showrunners on the HBO series, weren't the first to approach him about taking his series to the screen. He was approached by scriptwriters and producers who noticed the book's success and wanted to make it a movie. And I read that these people were very inspired by Lord of the Rings' success, like you mentioned, and they were trying to get in on that fantasy magic money for themselves. Then he held out. He did. Which was good on him because that's what they kind of squandered their opportunities with a bunch of fantasy series. Uh, Yeah. And Martin said this did make him think about how his series could be captured on the screen, and he knew it couldn't be a movie. was too big. I can't imagine any of these books being a movie. They're they're longer than any of the Lord of the Rings books. He also knew it couldn't be on network TV. It was too rated R. And the rated R part is kind of the crux of the story. And so he didn't really think there was any way it could be made. Now enter D.B. Weiss and David Beanoff. They met at Trinity College in Dublin, both getting their master's in Irish literature. Oh, wow. (laughs) And they said they connected because they were the only ones in their program who were more fantasy geeks than literature geeks. After they graduated, they both moved to L.A. and they wrote a script together called The Headmaster about Satan being at a boarding school and it didn't come to anything. (laughs) That's kind of funny, actually. (laughs) Years later, when they attempted to start making Game of Thrones as a TV show— they really didn't have much Hollywood experience between them. And honestly, I could do a segment like you did with Peter Jackson of how on earth did these people get to helm an HBO TV show with millions of dollars behind it. But again, like I said, there's no time. 
Weiss had worked in Hollywood as a production assistant and as a personal assistant, published a novel and worked on a screenplay for the video game Halo that never got made. Beanoff had a little bit more experience. He wrote the acclaimed novel City of Thieves and the novel The 25th Hour, which he also adapted to a feature that was directed by Spike Lee. Yeah. He'd also worked on the scripts, uh, some movie scripts, most notably for Troy, The Kite Runner, and X-Men Origins Wolverine. Oh. I don't know if that one's something to brag about. Yeah. but Hey, you got a movie made. <laughs> but if you think neither of them had helmed or produced a show before. Yeah, yeah. So... They got their Beanoff was the first to get his hands on Game of Thrones and told Weiss to read it. And they both loved it. And they said they just thought it would be a great TV show. And they set up a meeting with George R. R. Martin. When they first met Martin, Martin felt that Weiss and Beanoff had the same ideas of how the books could translate to the screen as him. And they obviously loved the material. There's this now famous question he asked them at the end of the meeting of who is Jon Snow's mother, which hadn't been revealed in the books and was something much speculated amongst the fans, and yeah. obviously they answered correctly. While they were all talking, they agreed that the only way they could do this TV show was that it was on, had to be on HBO and that Peter Dinklage had to play Tyrion Lannister. So now they had Martin on their team. All they had to do was convince HBO to produce this epic, expensive fantasy series, something that had never been done before on the scale that they were attempting to do it. They got a pinch, pitch meeting, and they went hard. And this is a quote from a Vanity Fair article called The Gathering of the Storm by Jim Wendolph. We ended up writing this letter, like a five-page letter, Beanoff says, explaining why this would work in terms of, this is what you guys do, whether it's taking a cop show with The Wire or a gangster show with The Sopranos and making them dirty and reinventing them. But no one had really done fantasy in that way. Part of their original pitch was also, what if the hero dies? Weiss said that he was a big fan of the TV show 24, but while watching that show, he never actually worried about Jack Bauer, the main character. He never thought he would die. He just kind of worried about how Jack Bauer would get out of the situation he was in, and he thought that with Game of Thrones, they had the potential to really do something different. They also pitched that fantasy was really the most popular genre and that the biggest successes in Hollywood had been fantasy. Examples given were Lord of the Rings, superhero movies, Star Wars, Jurassic Park. They, you talked about this yeah, too. And they, they, they were have, right. Yeah, they're totally right. They have a very good point. At the season eight premiere, years later, at Radio City Music Hall, Weiss, Weiss and Beanoff gave Richard Plepler so much praise for his support of Thrones from the beginning. Richard Plepler headed communications at HBO before becoming co-president in 2007 and is giving credit for building that HBO mystique. Mm. He signed off on making an adaptation of Thrones, despite how pricey it was and how much reshoots were costing. He also allowed Weiss and Beanoff to head the series, even though they didn't have a lot of a TV experience. And he said after meeting with Weiss and Beanoff, it was a pretty easy decision. This is a quote from him from a PenLive article, HBO CEO on Greenlight and Game of Thrones, HBO Success, Franklin and Marshall College Memories and More by Julia Hatmaker. He said about making the decision, we made it very comfortably, actually, after we met David Beanoff and Dan Weiss, because we had such faith in them and their vision and in what this could become, Plepler recalled. We had such confidence that they knew how to tell this story that George R. R. Martin had created in his books. However, if you dig, there's a different story that is actually told. And I think really? it's easy to say that this was a quote-unquote easy decision in hindsight. Yeah. Weiss and Beanoff got the network to give them $10 million and shot a pilot with it, which was apparently 
horrible, and it never aired. Apparently, major plot points were missing. People didn't understand which characters related to other characters. It was just bad news all the way through. Yeah, I read something about that, that they showed it to some Hollywood producers or friends, and they were like, you are in trouble if this is the pilot you shot. Yeah. And HBO was on the fence for four months about whether they were going to order the show to series. And Weiss and Beanoff said it was a horrible period of waiting, and they felt that maybe they had just thrown this golden opportunity away. But they finally got the okay and reshot the pilot. Part of it, I think, was HBO seeing how excited Thrones fans online were. Like, they were just... They had worked out everyone's casting before it had been announced. Like, the chat rooms were going crazy. Um, And so they recasted some of the characters, and the rest of the first season was shot to the tune of some $60 million. Weiss and Beanoff said that their first year was really probationary, but that HBO probably felt like they'd spent a lot of money on the pilot, so they may as well make this season. Oh, my God. (laughs) So they were not even... So, but it's just funny that, yeah, like years later, like, absolutely, we had complete faith in them. And then, like, obviously, Obviously they didn't. didn't. (laughs) I wonder if somewhere out there we can get a copy of that original pilot. I'd be very interesting. Me too. Apparently, uh, for those who know the story, like, this brother and sister have an incestuous relationship, but you couldn't tell that they were brother and sister in the pilot. So that relationship meant nothing to you. It wasn't Amelia Clark either in the pilot. No, the girl who plays Daenerys Targaryen. It was someone else. Which would be horrible if you got that part, saw what it became, and had been, and been re- yeah, recasted. So I want to talk a little bit about TV, which you, again, touched on at the time when Game of Thrones came out. There's a lot of comparisons to the TV of today to the films of the 1970s when Scorsese, Coppola, and Altman were making their great works. In the Financial Times, they said that when making this parallel, GOT is Star Wars the one that changes everything. We were talking about how these fantasy fantasy shows have the biggest successes. In this peak TV world at the time in 2011, HBO was leading the charge with having released The Sopranos, The Wire, and Deadwood. And in 2011 especially, other networks were starting to get get in on this peak TV madness. The top TV shows, especially critically at the time, were Mad Men and Breaking Bad, dramas on AMC, which was kind of this new network to the prestige TV game. Yeah. Also, Game of Thrones premiered a few weeks after House of Cards premiered, which was Netflix's first straight-to-order series, which also garnered a lot of critical praise and was very popular. And was was helmed by David Fincher, who you could say is one of the Coppola's or mm-hmm. Scorsese's of our, of our time. Dipping his director. toe into the TV world yeah, for the, yeah. just to start. Fantasy and sci-fi shows like Lost, True Blood, and The Vampire Diaries were proving that audiences would watch them, but they were missing that critical praise and prestige that dramas were getting on the TV. The first episode of Game of Thrones was watched by 2.2 million American viewers, and to give perspective, that's not bad, but it's less people than watched A&E Storage Wars. That was a hot show for a while, though. Yeah, well, (laughs) Game of Thrones wasn't beating it. The finale was watched by 3.2 million viewers, though it was the most pirated series ever that year, and I think every subsequent year since. Yeah. Prestige-wise, it went on to be nominated for 13 Emmys and won two, one for title design and one for Peter Dinklage for Best Supporting Actor, both very well-deserved. Yes. Though— like you read, it had a spotty reception from critics, some loving it, some completely dismissing it. The final season finale 
was watched by 12.2 million. And this is not counting for pirated episodes. Okay. The audience has grown every season, which apparently doesn't happen in the TV world anymore. By looking at social media mentions, browser searches, and views of trailers, an L.A. firm determined interest in Game of Thrones is 250 times greater than an average TV show. It is a phenomenon. That's incredible. Yeah. And you can kind of track that now in a way that you probably couldn't before. Yeah. Though before, everyone would watch it at the same time on the TV. So what happens for TV now that— Game of Thrones is over. And what happens to HBO? Because they have been relying on those subscriptions. Yep. When Game of Thrones premiered, like I mentioned, Netflix had just released its first streaming show, House of Cards. There have been many more streaming shows since. There are so many platforms competing for an audience. Networks are all trying to find the show that will set them apart and define how we watch TV differently. They want that series everyone is talking about, even people who wouldn't necessarily watch the genre— the kind of series that everyone will pay a monthly subscription for, to their service for. Game of Thrones started with a budget of $5 million an episode and was at the end spending as much as $15 million an episode. And it has opened Hollywood's wallets for TV shows. Netflix, for example, is estimated to spend at least $10 billion this year on content. It used to be just HBO that had these high-budget, high-prestige shows, but now Apple, Netflix, Amazon, FX, and TNT And other networks are all doing it. What makes it even harder for these networks is that it's easier for people to drop their streaming service subscription than it used to be for them to cancel their cable service. So you can, you know, subscribe for maybe this show, then decide you don't want to pay the money anymore, then subscribe to the next show. Yep. If we take a look at the upcoming year, HBO is producing His Dark Materials based on the very popular Philip Pullman books, The Golden Compass. We're going to get another, like, swipe at it. An adaptation of Watchmen with the creator of Lost. And they've also commissioned a prequel to Game of Thrones. What I find really ironic about that is that New Line, who made Lord of the Rings, their second swipe at fantasy film was also The Golden Compass. Oh, no. I love that. May, I don't, I hopefully, I don't know that it bodes well, but I oh, Kyle, really trust now HBO you're me. more than New Line, I guess. <laughs> um, well, a lot's changed. Also, Amazon is coming out, speaking of Lord of the Rings, is coming out with Lord of the Rings series, and apparently Jeff Bezos, the head of Amazon, made it very clear what he wanted. He wanted the next Game of Thrones on yeah. Amazon. And those are just a couple examples. Most of the networks are dropping huge money on TV shows hoping to catch that Game of Thrones magic that there really is no formula for and no one can actually predict. Look at Westworld. That was supposed to be HBO's new big Game of Thrones TV show that was going to kind of replace it as Game of Thrones petered off. And it has not quite risen to the heights that Game of Thrones has. No, no, it hasn't. It's a good show, but it's not what Game of Thrones is culturally. No, not at all. As far as HBO's uh, future goes, AT&T purchased HBO last summer for an estimated $85 billion. The chief executive and longtime chairman and other people, all of this includes Richard Plepler, who I mentioned above, uh, left, letting AT&T install their own people. Um, before the acquisition, their acquisition, HBO had already increased original content by 50% from the year to, before to compete with other streaming services— <laughs> It's a new world, and HBO is no longer the only kid on the block, which I keep on saying. And with AT&T, we can only imagine that they will release even more content. But there is a worry that the quality of shows is going to dip if there's a focus on quantity, and that HBO is going to lose that mystique 
that other services, uh, streaming services, I should say, are now trying to capture. And I, for one, I'm actually really excited to see what comes out of all this. Yeah, me too. I don't have a lot of hope for that Damon Lindelof Watchmen. I'll be honest. I think I don't think much of Damon Lindelof. Uh, but Philip, the Philip Pullman books becoming an HBO series, the miniseries, that could be really cool. Right. I read a lot of stuff, and I think it's so true. Like, you don't know what the next Game of Thrones is going to be. And while fantasy and sci-fi do do very well, I think almost trying to create that phenomenon makes it not quite happen. You're probably going to miss. Yeah. But it'll be really interesting. Also, what I didn't mention in my segment and what I did want to point out because you brought it up, I think them bringing George R. R. Martin on as one of the— I think he was a producer, but he was yeah. also he wrote some of the episodes yeah. has changed the way that TV is made where like if the creator is still around, they want to bring them on board. Or they before. want that like fan approval because <laughs> yeah. the creator is there. Yeah. Whereas before they didn't want their input at all. Yeah, which is crazy to think that if you're going to adapt a book, you wouldn't want the author, author of said book to give any input. Didn't Brandon Sanderson say he's on board for the Wheel of Time series and that they are actually listening to his suggestions? Brandon Sanderson did say that. It gives me hope for the Wheel of Time. Uh, Brandon Sanderson didn't write the Wheel of Time series. He wrote the last three books after Mm -hmm. the author Robert Jordan passed away before finishing them. But if Uh, you're going to bring someone in, he's the one you would bring in. Yeah, and and, uh, Robert Jordan's wife, Harriet, uh, is is very involved in the show apparently as well. So that gives me hope. Yeah. And she was his editor for all those books. But it it's so funny that it took to 2012 for them to realize that having the original content creator on board and hyping the show was it's a helpful. way to draw the fan base to yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe you do need them. Yeah. So now we are moving into our opinion segment. And we always talk about, we talked about Lord of the Rings, the uh, episode before. So really quickly, how did these two compare? Why did we link them? Did it make sense to link them? Are our views on them changed having done this research? And would we recommend consuming these pieces together or separately? I, so Kyle, pick, pick I one. I think there's a good chance uh, if you've seen the Lord of the Rings, you've probably seen at least some of Game of Thrones and decided it was for you or it wasn't for you. Uh, I think they're interesting I think story-wise, they're not uh, obviously they're they're not they don't complement each other in a story sense, but they do complement each other in just the pushing of fantasy genre to the forefront of our culture, and that's really interesting. And how do they compare? Makes me wonder if, like with Lord of the Rings, we're going to have a ten-year drought of good fantasy mm-hmm. now that Game of Thrones is over because everyone's rushing to produce stuff so quickly without care. Or if this is more of a stepping stone and we're getting to a better place where fantasy shows can be done with care and we don't have to have And taken seriously. I think we're more on a stepping stone because Outlander, well, it isn't as good as Game of Thrones, is good. It's good. It's really well done. That's yeah, true. and that source material is very much respected. Yeah. And the fans and how they react is very respected. Also, I do want to point out that there is no Game of Thrones books without the Lord of the Rings books. Definitely not. I mean, while Martin was trying to do something different, I feel like the bones of an epic fantasy story is so ingrained in Lord of the Rings. that Yeah. It's really hard to get away from. It's hard to get away from. Yeah. You can say the same thing about the show. I think it is clear that there would be no Game of Thrones show without Lord of the Rings movies setting the stage for people to try epic fantasy. Right. I mean, you could also say that the Lord of the Rings movies might have hurt Game of Thrones' chance after this research, that fantasy had just been doing so poorly afterwards that 
Why I, would you make a fantasy I, show? I think it showed in recent memory that you could yeah. do this successfully, and it did overall push the genre forward, even though there was about a lot of bad pale imitators afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also think right now with the Marvel movies and the money they're making, but also the care that they're being made with versus the DC movies, there is this there's idea of taking it seriously and seeing it financially pay off. Yeah, there's a lesson to be learned there. Um, I'm curious, Kyle. Um, do you remember when Game of Thrones came out? I do. So I was in Best Buy with my friend Elon in Western Maryland, and there was some... I don't know if he was a Best Buy rep or an HBO rep or where he was from, but he was giving out free DVDs of the first episode of Game of Thrones. Not free. They were one cent. They were one penny. penny just the first episode. And Wait, had it just come out or was this after the this fact? Was, this was um, pushing the sale of the box set of the first season. Okay. So the first season had finished and was being sold at Best Buy as a little box set, Blu-ray, whatever, and they were giving out just the first episode. And I love fantasy, and I was like, oh, yeah, I heard about this. Uh, I hadn't read Game of Thrones yet at that point, and I hadn't seen it. So we we got it. We went home. We watched it. I, a lot of people say they didn't like that first episode. We were immediately hooked, and we drove right back to Best Buy, <laughs> and we bought the first season, and I think we watched it in a day. And after that, we started, when the second season came out, we started having the parties. We would all go to, we'd all get together at my friend Megan's house in her basement, and we would watch Game of Thrones. And it was a tradition, and it was a lot of fun. Yeah. What about you? I remember seeing the posters in New York City. I hadn't moved here that long ago. And I remember, like, pointing them out to my boyfriend and saying, like, look, HBO is making fantasy. That poster of, you know, Sean Bean in front of the throne. I remember that. And I was already an HBO fan. I had watched The Wire. I had watched Deadwood. I'd watched Sex in the City. I knew they did quality work. But it. I couldn't believe that they were making a fantasy show, and I was so excited, just so happy that it was happening. And I didn't love the first episode, and then I watched the second episode and was hooked. But I was going to give the show lots of chances. Yes, yes, Um, But the second episode I was definitely in. Um, And just the excitement of like, oh, my God, this is for me. And I hadn't read the books, um, but it, it was so exciting. Like, I think I still get chills, like, thinking about, like, oh, my God, this is for me. Like, yeah. they're making this for me because fantasy shows are never good. They no, weren't good. They weren't. They weren't. The Legend of the Seeker wasn't a good show. Yeah. The Earthsea show wasn't a good show. You know what was good? Maybe the Hercules by Sam Raimi in the 90s. <laughs> but that was like, that was kind of your peak of a fantasy show. Right. Something like silly and fun, but nothing serious with weight, right. really. Nothing that people took seriously. Yeah. So it was very exciting for me when Game of Thrones came out. Um, and I think the last time I had been that excited about fantasy was Lord of the Rings. But I was in high school in Lord of the Rings. So it kind of just felt like, yeah, this great fantasy movie is coming out. Of course. Yeah. Duh. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. you, you kind of took it for granted. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I'm very happy that it is spawning these copycats because I hope a few of them are good. I mean, Outlander isn't my favorite show on TV, but it's good. It's a good show for sure. You know, definitely. Um, and I, I really, I can't wait for more of them. Yeah, me too. I mean, I think uh, a lot of us were unhappy with how the show ended. I I wasn't super into the ending, Claire. What about you? I liked the ending, but I didn't like the last season. Yeah. If it had just been that last episode, I would have been fine with it. Yeah. But I, the last season was kind of a mess. That being said, 
that doesn't spoil the show as a mm-hmm. whole for me. It's something I think back on really fondly. I'm so glad that Game of Thrones was made. Right. What's also hard for me is that the treatment of women in Game of Thrones is not great. It's I sometimes think it's worse than the books. Like, they took it to another level. Yeah. Um, though the women are treated horribly in the books, too. Yes. And I feel like the gratuity of it and the sexualization of it was really, like, hyped up on HBO, which is not all fantasy, for sure. Yeah. And that's kind of upsetting. But it's so funny because I, a lot of other shows, that would stop me from watching. I'd be like, no, this isn't worth it. Yeah. But it's so my thing that I just don't. I'm willing to forgive it. Yeah. I don't know if forgive's the right word, but I'm willing to look past look it because I'm so happy to be in this world. Yeah. Even though it's a harsh, harsh world, <laughs> Westeros. I know, this exploitive, harsh yeah. world where there's always naked women on the screen and yeah. no penises. Yeah. Not a one. Not a one. So, and it, but I, anyway. What do you think is going to be, if, if of all these potential shows, do you have a, a front runner, a horse you want to bet on for the next closest thing to Game of Thrones? I mean, I want to bet on Golden Compass just because I love that material yeah. so much. Even though when you make my favorite things into movies and TV shows, it makes me really nervous. And I almost wish you wouldn't because I think you're going to ruin it. But Golden Compass series has already been made into a stage show, which apparently was really good in London, and it was uh, made into a bad movie. So I feel like maybe they can elevate it some. At this point. And Lin-Manuel Miranda's in it. It Oh, is he really? Yeah, it has some things going for it. What are you excited about? Well, Claire, uh, you've probably heard me mention this before, but (laughs) the Wheel of Time. And it's funny when I think of the Wheel of Time and look at that that series history and compare it. It's very similar. It follows a similar path that George R. R. Martin's books did. And that, you know, the first Wheel of Time book came out in, I think, 1990, 1991. It, fans found themselves on the Internet. So in a lot of those, those articles I read about fans finding themselves on the Internet for Game of Thrones, they were finding themselves on Wheel of Time. Right, forums, forums and discovering Game of Thrones. And discovering Game of Thrones and then making some Game of Thrones forums. So they were all kind of uh, interspersed with each other. And people say that George R. R. Martin's going to pass away before he finishes the novels. And that is something that did happen to Robert Jordan. He wasn't able to finish his novels, but he had a very talented writer come in and finish them for him. Uh, I just, I, I'm hopefully optimistic for it. It's funny, I love Lord of the Rings, and I've talked to a lot of Lord of the Rings fans. I haven't found a one that's really that excited for this Amazon show. No. And most Mostly it's worry and... Why? Because we're ready for them to Hollywood eyes and ruin it. Yeah. And it's also, he's not, they're not taking from existing IP. They're kind of making their own story, right? Uh, it's its unclear. I've heard they're using stuff from the appendix because they don't, they have the rights to the Lord of the Rings, but not the rights to the Silmarillion. Mm, that's what's worrisome. Yeah. I thought they were originally going to remake the Lord of the Rings series and they were going to do it as a TV show. Yeah. And I thought that's fantastic because they're, including The Hobbit, there are seven books, quote-unquote, in Lord of the Rings, even though it's technically three and he combined them. Yeah. But you could make seven series, seven TVs, you know, series. Seasons. Seasons, yeah. that's the word I'm looking for, based on those seven books. And I think that they're, while the movies are great, they're very not, they're not fleshed out because yeah. they're movies. And I was excited about that. But now that I hear it's like early Aragorn or whatever, it's just ready for it to be bad. Like, be- the fa- like all fantasy TV yeah. shows are. Yeah. I bet you if they did do those seven seasons for mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings, the the books, they would still cut Tom Bombadil. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a threat. Um, but anyway, back to Game of Thrones. 
we we do recommend consuming Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings together because why not? Have a great time. Oh, yeah, definitely. If you have a strong stomach, you're fine for Game of Thrones. If you're listening to this, you've probably already watched Game of Thrones. Right. Um, and Lord of the Rings movies are pretty great. Always good. And I think it's also interesting because I did watch Lord of the Rings movies recently to yeah. see how the technology has gotten better. Yeah. Um, but it's also you can definitely see how it's a precursor to the Game of Thrones. For sure. Thank you all so much for listening. Once again, I'm Clara White. And I'm Kyle Willoughby. And we are Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, and Nerd Manual. Feel free to contact us on our website at dsrepodcast.com. You can also find links to all our social medias there as well. We would love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes. You can find the show on Twitter at DSRA Podcast. I can be found on Twitter at Along With Claire. That's C-L-A-I-R-E. I can be found on Twitter at Clex303. That's K-L-E-X-303. And you can find our producer James at James Bowie Jr. That's James F-O-U-H-E-Y-J-R on Twitter. You can learn more about the behind the scenes of Game of Thrones and some fantasy before Game of Thrones on our Facebook page where we'll post some of the articles we used. Our producer, who is definitely House Terrell, is James Bowie. You think so? I think he like likes the finer things. Yeah, he's. I always put him as kind of a Lannister. <laughs> he is a Terrell that acts like a Lannister. Yes, yes. Our logo is done by Patty Highland, who is definitely House Stark. Or a wildling. Or a wildling. And our theme was composed by Pete Rowan, who is from Dorne, just like staying out of everything. <laughs> Once again, this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. Thanks for listening, and we will see you in two weeks. <laughs>